1: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill
2: Bennett sitting in for Simi today. Well, this is a question that has been asked. It has been studied many times. Can we or will we ever be able to travel through time? And if so, what would it be like? Joining us now is Dr. Lawrence Krauss, theoretical physicist also author of the new book the known unknowns the unsolved mystery mysteries of the cosmos thank you so much for being with us
3: thank you it's nice to be with you at least virtually
2: (laughs) yes so is it something that's uh, that we will get an answer to do you think Uh, that question will we can we travel through time
3: well, I think we probably will get an answer, but one of the great things about it is, and this may sound depressing to you, but for, if you're a scientist, it's actually exciting. We don't know the answer, and that's, uh, that, that's what the book's all about, and you know, the, my, the first three wor- words of the book are that I don't know are the most important words in science, because they're an invitation to discover. The main thing is that we, what is amazing and surprising to me when I first started to think about it is that time travel is at least not impossible. Many people... Um, have have thought it was impossible for good reasons because it produces paradoxes. In fact, uh, um, my late friend Stephen Hawking, when I wrote a book called The Physics of Star Trek, had said time travel was impossible because if it were possible, all we'd already be inundated by tourists from the future. For example, I countered him by saying they all went back to the 1960s and no one noticed. So <laughs> and he had to change his mind. But but the point is that given the law, given general relativity, given our, our this, which connects space and time. It says that space and time are really on the same, uh, the, the same basis, and therefore, if I can go on a circle in space, if I can travel to Vancouver and back, why can't I go on a circle in time and travel to the future or the past back? And general relativity says that, well, I can write mathematically down the, exactly what you'd need to have a universe that allowed time travel, and so <clears throat> that's no problem. The real question and the thing we don't know is, can you create such a universe? Do we live in such a universe? We know it requires a very special type of matter and energy, particular energy, to produce something that might allow you to go backwards in time. Uh, but we just don't know if you can produce that kind of uh, uh, configuration. But, but if you could, you, you would have those paradoxes. And that's, that's one of the reasons many physicists are skeptical, because I could go back in time and kill my grandmother, say, before. Why I would want to do that? I don't know. But kill my grandmother before my mother was born, and then if my then my mother wouldn't exist, but if my mother wouldn't exist, then I wouldn't exist. And then how did I go back in time and kill my grandmother? And you know, some people have suggested that the solution is that when you go back in time, you're sort of doomed to repeat exactly the same events. You can't change things. Right. Uh, there's lots of there's lots there's lots of sort of potential loopholes, but we just don't know. Now, there's another really interesting thing about time travel that. I think this is the first time I've mentioned it in this particular book. That, that kind of also puts a kibosh on, a little bit on some of the science fiction stuff, like the famous time machine book of H.G. Uh, Wells. If you have a time machine, it also has to be a space machine. Because what most of us don't realize, because we feel like we're standing still here on Earth, is that the Earth is going around the sun at 30 kilometers per second, pretty darn fast. If I went back in time an hour and, and came out in exactly the same place, where I was when I when I when I started the, the time travel, the Earth would have an hour ago. The Earth would have been in a very different place, and I'd end up in, in I'd come out in, in empty space, which would not be very, very uh, conducive to being alive. <laughs> and so uh, and so you'd have to have a space and time machine. It's it, but it you know the ideas are fascinating. The fact that the fact that we really don't know if you we, we actually know how. We know the kind of configurations you'd have to create. Something called a wormhole, for example, would make a time machine. But we just don't know. A wormhole, by the way, if you saw the movie Contact, is the, yes. the shortcut short through space that Jodie Foster took. Well, it turns out you can prove that such a, if such a thing existed, it would also be a time machine. And, and, uh, and we, just, we just don't know if you can create it. There are obstacles to creating it. It turns out a normal wormhole would have the mouth of the wormhole collapse to be a black hole at either end, so you could never get through if there was normal matter. but if you had this strange kind of energy called negative energy, you might be able to keep the mouth of the wormhole open. All of these are open questions, and they 're the kind of things that that fascinate people like me but and in fact, I you know used to get paid to, to think about these things, but I think they 're fascinating for everyone and and the really neat thing is questions like time travel, which are really at the forefront of science are all the very same questions we all have ourselves. And the same is true for all the questions in, in the book. They're really fundamental. How did the universe begin? Are we alone in the universe? That sort of thing.
2: You mentioned too, and I think so many people think of going back in time, if you could do that and doing something that would alter the, how life played out and how that would maybe cause chaos for everything. But you also mentioned going time travel to the future. How would that even be possible since it hasn't happened yet?
3: well that's a really good question in, in it could if you think about uh, general relativity and you think about space and time being more or less the, part of the same thing, then some theories say that the future is already ma- mapped out in a sense that space just like all of space exists all of time exists and and the future and the past are we we, we exist at one moment in them, but the future is already there, and we don 't know and you know but one thing I can prove to you is that there's no no one has traveled to the future already, because um, and you sort of get an idea of it from the Back to the Future movies. But mm-hmm. but if I could go into the future, um, just one day, I could become richer than Elon Musk, right? I could I could know what the stock market's going to do tomorrow, come back today and make the right investments. And and, 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 and so the fact that there are so few multi billionaires in the world indicates that that no one's traveled to the future.
2: Are we talking about parallel universes then, or is that something completely different?
3: Well, that's a good point. Some people have suggested, although I don't see any way for this to be the case, but, but they've suggested that, you know, maybe when you go back in time uh, you, you, and you come back, you end up in a slightly different universe than you were in before. Uh, you, the laws of quantum mechanics are sometimes interpreted to be as if every time I make an observation, I pick one universe out of many. I don't happen to like that, that picture, I think, it, but, but it is one way of thinking about quantum mechanics. And some people said maybe there's a loophole. Maybe you jump to another, as people would say, branch of the quantum wave function when you come back. So it's okay that you've changed the, the future when, you, when you've gone to do the past. But as far as I know, there's no physical argument that suggests that should be possible. Now, there may be parallel universes. There may be other universes. In fact, if there are extra dimensions, there could be a whole other universe a millimeter away from you in an extra dimension that we wouldn't even know about. Um, And and physicists have speculated about that. It's, again, one of the known unknowns. String theory, for example, suggests that there are many extra dimensions that we can't experience, usually because they're extremely, extremely small. But as actually one of my former students showed, that you could actually consider extremely large extra dimensions, but... If all the forces that we experience are only tied to our dimension, except for gravity, then those could exist and really be invisible to us. And so these are these are interesting speculations. What really ma- makes it more than metaphysics is that we w- we're trying to do experiments to figure out if these things are true. And so ultimately, it'll be nature that'll decide what's true or isn't, and whether we like time travel or not, whether we find it confusing uh, or not is not. It, that's irrelevant. If if it's allowed, it's allowed, and we'll have to. Bend our minds around what 's possible, just like thinking about not just time travel but the beginning of time itself. If time had a beginning, then there was no before but if there 's no before, then then we have to change our language because we tend to think of cause and effect right something happened if something happens, there was a cause of before, but if there 's no before, there 's no cause in that way and 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 that's those are difficult things and strange things but and they make us uncomfortable, but that 's okay. The universe doesn 't exist to make us comfortable it makes it, it exists to to, to to open our minds and 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 every time we're uncomfortable, we're 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 sort of entering new territory, and that's the that's the thrill of discovery. And for me, I find it addictive.
2: Oh, definitely. Uh, and we only have a couple of minutes left, but I'm curious. You mentioned Jodie Foster in the movie Contact, and if people have mm-hmm. seen it, you, you remember mm-hmm. the the physical of her going through that wormhole. Uh, who's going to be the guinea pig? Do we know what it would do to somebody to actually travel through time?
3: Uh, well, if it was a wormhole, and if you had a big enough wormhole, then you'd survive. A small enough wormhole would, would have such strong gravitational forces in it. It would be very close to being a black hole, and you'd be stretched like spaghetti. So you really wouldn't want, hmm. you wouldn't want to send anyone you cared about in there. But a big enough wormhole, in principle, in principle, could be survivable. So, But it, it just depends upon the type of time machine, uh, if one exists, the type of energy and matter configuration that you put together. And... Um, and there are many, lots of papers have been written down, ph- physics papers, suggesting mathematical types of, of, of time machines. And they differ. One, some involve cosmic strings, some involve wormholes. What's clear is it, you can't do it with just, you know, going into your basement or into your garage. You need something, a new type of energy and a, a new type of configuration of matter and energy. So it's not the kind of thing that, that uh, we're going to be able to engineer. And we just, and you know, maybe in... In, in particle accelerators, we might be able to probe to see if we can create those weird configurations. It's not going to be uh, an everyday phenomenon. And I, I, I'm, I'm betting, frankly, that it's, I'm betting it's not possible. But what's great about science is being wrong mm. and, and being surprised. And so I'd love to be surprised.
2: All right. Well, it is fascinating research. Uh, Dr. Krauss, thank you so much for joining the show and for talking more about this today.
3: Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. You take
0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com
1: slash loss. This is Mornings with Simi. It is
2: time for Friday's check-in with Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. Reggie, good morning to you. Good morning. Lots to talk about today. Let's start with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and his entry into the presidential campaign.
4: Yeah, a rocky entry into the presidential campaign, opting to forego traditional media and using a Twitter spaces conversation with billionaire Elon Musk to jump into the race. It was meant Uh, with delays and glitches by about half an hour, and it kind of became a bit of a punchline for those who were waiting for him to make the announcement. But ultimately, look, Ron DeSantis spoke to, you know, the journalists on Twitter and that segment of Twitter's population that sometimes has a view further away from the center to explain why he is ultimately the person for the job in 2024, going after policies that exist under the Biden administration, uh, making veiled swipes at Donald Trump. This is before he then went on Fox. News about an hour later, but this is a big deal because he is now essentially the number two in the race, even though his you know polling numbers still pale in comparison to where Trump is right now.
2: Right, uh, but still early, and and a lot of response to not only the rocky start as you said uh, on Twitter but uh, what we can expect in the coming days and weeks
4: yeah I, I mean look the, the the u.S election is still 75 weeks away so there's plenty of time for either Ron DeSantis to catch up to Donald Trump or any of the other number of candidates that're trailing in single digits right now to get up to where Ron DeSantis is the question is does what DeSantis uh, is what DeSantis has done in Florida over the last several months including some really controversial policies that have been enacted uh, it may work in Florida is there a national appetite for what Ron DeSantis uh, can, you know, can offer? Particularly when it comes to something like abortion, Jill. He's really pushing through, pushing forward for a six-week abortion ban that falls way out of line with where uh, national polling averages are. So this is going to be the test now to whether or not, you know, what works in Florida does this kind of have a ripple effect and be embraced by a more national audience?
2: We've seen the president of Mexico urging Latino voters not to, to back Governor DeSantis. How unusual or is it that we see the, the, the Mexican president getting in or weighing
4: in so early? I mean, look—it's—it's it's pretty remarkable to have uh, a foreign government trying to not particularly interfere, but interject in another government's uh, election. Look from the White House podium, you would never hear somebody uh, talk about, you know, an election in Canada or the U.S. Other than they intend to work with whoever is uh, ultimately going to be elected. But this really does uh, mark a critical moment for how Ron DeSantis has treated the immigration issue, because look, it is a—he is partly to blame uh, for some of those political stunts that saw uh, migrants not only bust out of state, but also flown into other parts of the United States. And he's also enacted some incredibly strong um, immigration policies in Florida that essentially, in some cases, make it illegal for a bus driver or a subway driver to transport, um, you know, someone whose immigration status is in question from one point to another. So you know, it's not surprising to hear the Mexican president come out with these kinds of, of comments. The question is, is it going to resonate with a state where the the Latin population, the Latino population really has been gravitating towards the Republican Party?
2: Yeah, well, uh, will certainly be interested interesting to watch. And like you said, still many, many weeks uh, to look forward to more happening there. I wanted to ask you as well about some pretty lengthy sentences. And these are related to the group, the so-called Oath Keepers uh, from January 6th.
4: Yeah, uh, Steve, uh, Stuart Rhodes, rather, uh, a, 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 you know, Ivy League school graduate, uh, was sentenced to, uh, I believe it was 16 or 18 years in prison after being indicted for seditious conspiracy. And this all goes back to the uh, riots that took place at the U.S. Capitol. This is the longest sentence that has been handed out. Uh, uh, counterpart was also handed uh, 12 years uh, for Kelly Meggs, a co defendant from the Florida chapter of the Oath Keepers. And essentially, what you have the judge saying is that, uh, you're not a political prisoner here. You are the one who ultimately incited this violence uh, and and the unrest that took place at the U.S. Capitol. and And the judge called this person an ongoing threat. And apparel to the United States and its democracy. I think the the kind of question to look down the road at Jill is well, you know, there's going to be an appeal process. You've heard candidates like Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis say that they would potentially issue a pardon to people that they believe were treated improperly who took part in the riot. Now Stuart Rhodes didn't take part; he was not in uh, or around the Capitol at the at the time. He was just charged, you know, with with trying to get the ball rolling here. But do these prison sentences stick, considering Republicans have really tried to make these people out to be political prisoners?
2: Yeah, and I, I thought it was interesting too that, uh, was it the prosecution was actually asking for 25 years, uh, but still 18 seems like a pretty hefty sentence.
4: Yeah, and it, it's worth pointing out that, you know, this is you know roughly a thou- one of a thousand cases that have been pushed through uh, the courts since January 6th, and a lot of the sentences have come down less than what has been requested, but above what the sentencing guidelines would be and I think that it really shows that these uh these judges some of which you know have different background uh, different political backgrounds from each other are all taking the threat that was posed to American democracy on January 6th the exact same
2: right well we'll still be uh, watching that uh, for sure uh Reggie what about talks uh, regarding the debt ceiling because I know people here are watching that seeing what kind of an impact it might have on Canada as well but what's happening with that
4: So, look, the the, the U.S. Deputy Deputy Treasury Secretary just a couple of hours ago made comments that negotiations are moving closer towards a deal. We heard that from the White House yesterday. We've heard that from negotiators on the Republican side in the House. The issue is... Close isn't a deal, and without a deal, a default is likely going to happen when the U.S. essentially runs out of money to pay its bills. Uh, And this is a big deal because, A, it could throw the U.S. into recession. It could tank the markets. That would tank the Canadian markets. It would leave the possibility open for Canada to tip into a recession. The, the issue when it comes to this deal, Jill, is what concessions are being made. Republicans want to see less spending. Democrats want to see, um, you know, an increased ability to go after and roll back the tax breaks that were given to uh, wealthy people and to corporations. But the furthest parts of each party are going to be angry if concessions were made. They're going to see it as negotiating with the devil, uh, you know, it, to, to to use a, a phrase there. And does this put kind of political pressure or leave in political jeopardy Kevin McCarthy or or Joe Biden for making some kind of a deal? Either way, there's only six days to go before the U.S. runs out of money. Lawmakers are now on a break. They're going to have to come back. They're going to have to review. They're going to have to vote. So even if a deal is reached, it's still really in flux as to what happens if this goes beyond June 1st.
2: Uh, so really, I mean, both sides have to compromise. Is it uh, looking at it in the optics of who's compromising more? more?
4: Yeah, uh, realistically, it's it's a who's going to blink first thing. The White House has said for for weeks, if not months, let's leave the the conversation over raising the debt ceiling independent from the budget. We can talk about the budget, but essentially, the debt ceiling is to borrow money for things that we have already spent. Uh, and and concessions from the Republicans, you know, they say, well, look, raising the debt ceiling is our concession. Democrats have hit back to say you are essentially putting the livelihoods of Americans and people around the world at risk by tying everything towards what we may spend in the future. Uh, if the White House ultimately, you know, wins on this, but there's concessions on their side, that's going to be a big issue for progressive Democrats. And that could put Joe Biden, who's already facing low approval numbers uh, in more hot water as he runs towards 2024's re-election.
2: All right. Lots to keep an eye on for sure. Reggie, great to chat with you this morning. Thank you. Happy Friday. Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News.
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: British Columbians that are living with brain injuries and brain injuries related specifically to substance abuse will now be able to access specialized supports through what is being called a first-of-its-kind program in Canada. It's the Vancouver Coastal Health's Cognitive Assessment and Rehabilitation for Substance Use Program. And joining us now to talk more about this is Karen Barkley, Director of Mental Health and Substance Use at Vancouver Coastal Health Richmond. Karen, thank you so much for being here.
5: Thank you so much for having me. Uh, How is this different
2: than say for anybody that has a brain injury that needs help and needs medical attention?
5: Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, What really makes this program stand out is that Rather than focusing at the outset on maybe the other skills related to why someone might be using substances and talking about changing substance use, this program gives access to a really robust neurocognitive assessment from neuropsychologists, occupational therapists, and addiction psychiatrists to understand brain function. So people who are using substances or have used substances in the past and want to understand more about the impact on the neurology in their brain and how that's showing up in their thinking skills, memory, and attention can have an assessment with us and get a deeper understanding of their specific uh, impairments and strengths. And then we work with people to apply those to practical aspects of their daily life so that they can actually engage better in some of our more traditional and still available counseling-based substance use support services.
2: Okay. So is it, though, is it targeted at people who have had a brain injury related to substance abuse, related to overdose, or is it also or more about why somebody is using drugs or using illicit drugs?
5: Really the former, Jill. Yes. Somebody who has mild cognitive impairment or suspected uh, brain injury. So we're really looking at the mild end of the spectrum of brain injury. So when you think about brain injury going all the way up to uh, a very severe brain injury, which would require, you know, around the clock healthcare support, uh, we're focusing on the end of the scale that we would refer to as mild cognitive impairment. And I want to, uh, you know, really Uh, say that mild cognitive impairment is really not mild in the life of somebody who's experiencing it because of the impact on really important uh, skills like reasoning and attention. So the way this might show up for someone is that they've got difficulty with planning or problem solving, uh, maybe even difficulty with visual depth perception, struggling, struggling to judge distances, it can be hard to go up and down stairs. And where we really notice this showing up is that people would drop out sometimes of our uh, traditional substance use programs, and there might be a risky assumption that that person might just not be interested or ready to participate, and it could be an undetected uh, mild cognitive impairment or mild brain injury, and that's the space that we're really trying to focus here on, on helping clarify that for folks and uh, get them on the right track.
2: Is it because we're seeing more people who are being brought back with with, um, naloxone that are suffering brain injuries from
5: repeatedly overdosing and coming back? Definitely. That is an impact for sure. Um, When somebody has a a non-fatal overdose or survives uh, an overdose, uh, there can be a period of lack of oxygen. Um, that's what an opioid does. It can repress your respiratory system and cause a lack of oxygen to the brain and your other internal organs. And that, of course, can have an impact which could be mild and, and difficult to detect. With repeated overdoses, certainly the the risk goes up, um, multifactorial risk increases. And as people are surviving, which is which is good, we obviously want that, there can be a cumulative effect over time and will part of the program be
2: education about that and the dangers of not only uh, continuing to use illicit drugs but the fact that it can lead to brain injury.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean the program is focusing on the assessment and and individualized planning and programs for each person, and depending on their readiness. So something that's uh, really important is that we do welcome everyone at every stage uh, of their journey and we're not limiting access to someone who's already stopped using substances because we do see this as an opportunity, just as you say, to start that conversation. And if people have the opportunity to better understand that they might be having, say, a memory problem, we can work with them around strategies about compensating for that memory issue that might help them actually participate more and they might feel more confident uh, attending a program that would help with curbing their uh, relapses towards using substances in the future, for example.
2: How will you recruit people or, or get to the people that might benefit from this the most?
5: So I think it's really, uh, in, in three different ways. I mean, we often openly accept self-referrals. So, uh, if you're a person who's finding that you're forgetting appointments, you know, having difficulty making decisions, um, and have a, a history or current use of substances and, and also not just opioids, still also alcohol, um, has a huge effect on the brain. So really we're open to anyone who uses any substances and is noticing this in themselves and would like to receive access to a really supportive, a welcoming environment where we would perform these assessments and work with you. Self-referral at the number 604-204-1111. We also uh, accept referrals from healthcare providers. We don't require a doctor's um, referral, but we, we welcome folks to identify individuals that they might be working with who perhaps are having difficulty following through. They have a high desire. Uh, to participate in healthcare, but are just having difficulty showing up, and maybe there's a you know suspected underlying brain injury. We would be happy to receive those referrals as well. All right, Karen, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me.
1: This is Mornings with Simi. Thanks for being with us. Jill Bennett sitting in for
2: Simi Sarah. Well, is there a negative side to telling a young person you can do anything you want? Follow your dreams, perhaps. And are we seeing the consequences of that? Well, Todd Hirsch is joining us right now on the line, former vice president and chief economist for ATB Financial. Also the author of The Boiling Frog Dilemma, Saving Canada from Economic Decline. Todd, thank you so much for being here.
6: Oh, pleasure to be here, Jill. Thank you.
2: Well, it's an interesting one because it sounds like there wouldn't be anything wrong with saying follow your dreams, <laughs> do what makes you happy. But has this caused a bit of a labor crisis?
6: Well, I can't help but think so. And, you know, I want to make it clear, I'm all about telling kids to, you know, follow their dreams. But it has to be balanced with the sense of you might not be Beyonce. You might not be an NHL hockey star And I think sometimes, maybe in the last 30, 40 years, we've maybe erred too much on the side of encouraging kids to believe that they can do and be anything they want. And in fact, it just isn't true. And, you know, in some ways, these young people are the victims of being told that because then when they're being presented with real life choices and real opportunities that don't seem to match their dreams, you know, and then we wonder sometimes, why are we having a hard time filling, uh, especially skilled or uh, labor positions, uh, skilled trade positions? You know, nobody dreams of growing up to be an electrician. And that's why we're having a hard time.
2: <laughs> and so is it kind of losing that balance as well? And, and with new, relatively new jobs, uh, you could be a, a social influencer. You only have to work a few hours a week kind of f- f- filling those or pushing those types of dreams.
6: Well, that's exactly it. And there was an interesting study that done uh, several years ago, and this was actually in the United Kingdom, but I'm sure Canada would be the same. It was a survey of children from the 1950s versus the early 2000s. In the 1950s, children wanted to be things like doctors and nurses and astronauts. And, you know, a lot of those things were sort of policemen and policewomen. These things were around public service. In the 2000s, it's things like uh, sports celebrity, um, music celebrity, and uh, today would be social media influencer. Uh, things that are completely unattached to social services or serving the public. And that kind of shift has created some problems, I think, in in trying to find skilled workers for a lot of the jobs.
2: Uh, is it because, too, there are so many more choices now and so many different types of jobs and professions that uh, you could choose any number of career
6: paths? Well, that is part of it, but um, I think what we—the uh, bigger problem—is because of social media, because of our sort of obsession with celebrity culture, we've created this idea that being, you know, Canadian Idol or American Idol is a career choice, and it really isn't. Uh, I, in my piece on the Globe and Mail, I, I uh, kind of referenced the American Idol TV show, and a lot of your listeners will remember Simon Cowell and, and Paul Abdul. And part of the fun of the show was watching the tension between these two. And Paula would say something like, you know, you're amazing. Never stop dreaming. Shoot for the stars. And then Simon would say, well, you're probably amazing at some things, but you can't sing. You've embarrassed yourself. And, you know, he could have been a little kinder for sure, but at least he was truthful. So it always comes back for me that balance to encouraging young people to you know, believe in themselves, that they can achieve amazing things, but also the realism that what am I here on this earth for? Is it to be Beyonce? Is my passion singing? Can I find a way to live my passion, but still follow opportunities?
2: Right. And has is it, is it become also that it's not, uh, or parents or caregivers aren't giving kids the, the truth about, sure, follow your dreams, be the next Beyonce, but maybe have a backup career just in case?
6: Yeah, the only problem with that is it makes it sound like, you know, the backup career, they failed at what they were trying to do. And I don't think it's, you know, if, if someone ends up being maybe a music teacher that's not a failed option. <laughs> In fact, a music teacher is a wonderful, uh, fulfilling uh, uh, option. And I just worry that, you know, this plan B idea, I get what you mean, but the plan B makes it sound like if you fail, this is what you fall back on because you're a failure. And I think that's the wrong way of approaching it. I don't think anyone who's a music teacher or an HVAC installer should think of themselves as a failure because these people are actually contributing to the world. They're actually contributing to other people's lives in a way that maybe Beyonce can't.
2: No, it's a—it's a, an interesting point. You mentioned as well, trades. And do you think it's also that we've not done a great job in, in putting that forward as, uh, you said, electrician or, or a job in construction? These are not fallback jobs. These are jobs that come no. with very, very good salaries.
6: Very good salaries. And again, I think we need to do a better job in not just the salaries, but Can you uh, choose a career path that is actually helping other people? And if you think about an electrician, how important is it that this electrician does her job or his job properly so, in fact, that people can have electricity and not burn the house down? You know, I think we need to think about these trade jobs as, yeah, they pay well, but they're also contributing to the well-being of our society, and if we think about it that way, then these jobs actually can become aspirational. That an NHL hockey star is not the only thing a young boy or girl would aspire to, but that they might aspire to, you know, a job in the trades because there is a, a social good—you're contributing to the benefit of other people. I think that's where we need to maybe focus.
2: So, what needs to change then, or have we lost this generation that grew up just being told well, "follow your dreams"? <laughs> or what what happens now?
6: I don't know if we've lost them. And I want to make it clear, you know, in some ways, I'm part of that generation. Basically, anybody born after 1960, I think, in our affluent Canadian society, we were all sort of told this. So I'm part of the generation as well. And I really don't want to make it sound like young people are lazy or entitled, because the young people I meet are not lazy. They're just a little disillusioned, I think, because they were told they can be anything, When the reality is that their options are maybe a little bit closer to the ground. But I think what we need to do, I don't want to think about, you know, we've lost a generation. But I do think we need to maybe change the dialogue when we talk to our children, when we talk to young adults, even when we talk to sort of middle-aged adults. The question isn't, you know, what do you aspire to do or what is your passion? The question is follow opportunity and bring your passion with you. Passion is really important. But passion, we have to remember, is internal. And that means we can't follow it. We can bring it with us. Opportunity is external. That we can follow and we bring our passion with us. I think we just need to sort of flip the dialogue on that. It's not about leaving your passion behind. It's about bringing it with you. But following opportunity and encouraging people, what, is, what, what, what can you do in this world to make the world a better place?
2: All right, Uh, interesting, uh, interesting uh, take on that, Todd. Thank you so much uh, for joining the show today.
6: Thanks, Jill. It's been a pleasure.
1: This is Mornings with Simi. It is
2: time uh, to kick it with the Whitecaps. Vanny Sartini is here, coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. Good morning.
7: Good morning, Jill. How are you? Very well. How about you? Very good, very good. Well, nice, ve- nice day. It's sunny. It's so fantastic. <laughs> that is
2: true. It's a very beautiful day out there. <laughs> uh, you are are coming out from a very exciting game that took place on Wednesday, and looking forward to the Canadian Championship. A lot going on.
7: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We 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 are we're in a very busy period, a busy schedule. So last two games they went well. We in the league we beat Seattle last Saturday here in Vancouver. And then Wednesday, we went to Victoria for the semifinal of, our, of the Canadian Championship. And we, we beat Pacific, so we qualified for the final. So, of course, now we're thinking about the tomorrow's game in St. Louis. But uh, we're already buzzing because uh, in, in 10 days, basically, we, Montreal will, will come here for, uh, and we'll have a trophy on the line to, on that final. So mm. that's, uh, it's, uh, it's a very busy, busy period.
2: Oh, yeah, sounds like it for sure. And I know there was some some injury as well, but how are things going there?
7: Yeah, no, yeah, it was a very scary moment. Uh, like uh, one of our players, Ali Ahmed, uh, uh, on a tackle, he basically lost consciousness for kind of 90 seconds. And, uh, you know, when, when that happens and you see all the paramedics coming and uh, it was very upsetting, to be honest. The, the game was suspended for... Kind of 20 minutes, uh, he had to be mm, taken to the hospital. But then at the end, it was uh, he went everything well. He was just a very big concussion. He's still a little bit uh, dizzy, but uh, uh, he went much better than uh, he could have uh, gone, and in and how it seemed at the beginning. So we 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 were very. Happy that uh, he's going to recover soon, so yeah everything everything went well
2: all right well that that is good news for sure yeah uh, Vanny we've only got about a minute left uh, preparing though for for the finals against Mont- Montreal that's got to be really exciting
7: yeah it is it is it is it's like uh, you know last year we did it we, we, we did the, we won the Canadian championship we beat Toronto in the final this year we had the chance to make history to to do the first time for our team winning back to back so the, the the best way to do it to prepare is to play well these games that we have in between these league games that we have in between and we need to start tomorrow in San Louis it's going to be really hard but uh, you know uh, winning helps winning so yeah let's start let's start tomorrow
2: all right so I know the fans are going to be cheering at you on for sure Vanny. thanks so much we'll talk to you again soon
7: fantastic thank you so much bye-bye
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: Well, imagine going fishing, setting in for a nice day, maybe hoping to reel in one of the big ones and catching something else completely. That is what happened to my next guest, an Abbotsford teen. Taro Milligan is on the line with us now. Taro, thank you for taking some time this morning.
8: Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me.
2: So you were fishing on the Sumas River. Uh, Tell us uh, when you were doing this and what happened.
8: So I was fishing in, like, uh, the late afternoon on Victoria Day with my buddy on By Road. And right near the bank, like, two feet from where I was standing, I hook on this, uh, like, black box. I thought it was a piece of garbage. I pull it in, and uh, it's covered in duct tape. I take the tape off, and I'm, like, in shock looking at a bunch of World War I and Two medals right in front of me.
2: Wow. What kind of condition are they in? Um, They've definitely seen
8: some wear and tear from, like, being underwater. But, like... I was still able to clean them up with just, like, a toothbrush and be able to read the service number, the name, get some more information.
2: Wow, that's... Uh, I, I can only imagine the look on your face when you opened up that box. Now, when you reeled it in and you saw that there was a a box that had been taped up, did you have any ideas what you might be dealing with?
8: Uh, I honestly just thought it was, like, garbage thrown off a bridge. Like, it was just going to be a box full of, uh, like old paper garbage or something. I well, didn't think of anything until I opened the box.
2: And a good thing you opened it because, I mean, somebody might, uh, somebody else maybe if had, they'd caught it might have exact thought exactly that. Oh, it's just garbage and tossed it away. Yeah, exactly. How heavy was it? Um, There was some weight to it. Like you could tell it had, like,
8: like you could tell there was like something heavy in it because it was making my, my rod bend like crazy when it, when had it hooked on it.
2: Interesting. So you you were able to kind of take a toothbrush and clean them up. What what kind of writing is on it?
8: Uh, so there's a service number and then there's a name that is Lance Corporal K.G. Strathy.
2: Hmm. And have you done any kind of web sleuthing or any uh, thing to try and figure out who these might belong to?
8: Yeah, I've had a couple uh, emails from people helping me out, like through the article that are helping me out. And I've had uh, I've just got sixty eight pages worth of uh, service records back from the war, so dental records, his release date, and his full name.
2: Oh wow! So, so how, uh, sorry. How did you get that, or how did you kind of follow that trail and and, and figure out more about who these might belong to? Um,
8: on on the first uh, news article, I left my email, and people have been emailing me, uh, and someone went out of their way to do some research for me to find those records.
2: Interesting. And so are you now searching to see if there are family members or there, there are people that maybe would, would like to have these back?
8: Yeah, I've been trying to look through like Facebook and other social media outlets to see if I can find people with uh, the similar or same last name that might be related to the owner of the medals.
2: And, and sorry, what was his name again?
8: His name was Kenneth Gordon Strathy, Lance Corporal.
2: All right. And and do does it say like which battle or does it give any other information as far as what what he did?
8: Um I'm I'm not certain. There's there's a
2: couple medals in there that are like
8: campaign medals, like the Africa and Italy star, but I'm not very like well educated in, in medals. But a lot of people I've had to check them out have like told me some things about them.
2: Right, so, and I would imagine too. I mean, these could potentially be priceless to a, a family member, or if there are family members. But uh, any idea on what uh, these might actually be worth? Um, I
8: honestly have like no idea, considering that like they're silver, that they have like the sil- like a silver value. But I don't really know about like war memorabilia being sold. Like, I don't know if it goes like goes for anything or not. I'm super interested in just finding the family. I didn't even, like, think of uh, value or anything.
2: Right, and, and which I think they're pretty lucky that it was you that caught these or snagged the medals and maybe not somebody else who wouldn't care as much. Why is it so yeah. important to, for you to to find the family and to try and, and reconnect these or get these back to, to somebody that, that would have a connection to them?
8: Uh, I was once in cadets, and I, like... I've always had, like, respect for, for veterans and, and Remembrance Day and anyone who does service, and I just feel that it's right that if you do the service, your family should have the the full right to own your property that shows you did service and proves you fought for the country.
2: And you mentioned, too, so you were fishing on, on Vi Road when this happened. Can you describe the area a little bit? Not that, that we would probably ever know how these ended up but where they were but what kind of area what was nearby where you were on Vi Road? Like all that was there was a
8: like the Sumas Elementary School was just a couple seconds down the road but the area I was fishing in was just like mud and bushes like next to a farm.
2: Hmm. And so do you have any theory or idea how this box may have ended up there?
8: Uh, My theory is is that during the floods, uh, I think it got, like, sucked out of someone's, like, garage or basement and just brought into the whole river when, like, the water was high.
2: Mm, That's, you know what, that's probably a pretty good theory on on how that happened. Because what kind of shape was, you mentioned the tape and that, did it seem like it had been in the water for a long time?
8: Yes and no. Like, part of me was thinking it could have been down there for, like, 10, 20, 30 years, who knows, but... Part of me is also like, well, like I could still peel the duct tape. Like it still had like stickiness to it. It's not like there's metals in there that still have ribbons. I would have thought that like the water would have eaten all the ribbon away, but there's still ribbons. So I, I, I do feel it hasn't been down there for as long as others might think.
2: And do you think that perhaps, I mean, if your theory, which is a good one, seems like that's probably how they got there. If there is that box of metals, who knows what else is there? Have you gone back or do you have any kind of thoughts that you might go back and see what else you might be able to snag in that part of the river? Oh, absolutely. I haven't gone back yet, but I've really
8: been wanting to go back and see if there's more things down there.
2: Yeah. How deep is the water?
8: Um right in the middle of like the the river it's a lot deeper but near the banks it's probably only about like knee deep on me not even
2: right so and and it's not i mean I, the river i think it's not as though you can you can see through it or you'd be able to see what was on the bottom but certainly tempting to go back isn't it and see what else yeah. might be there no absolutely yeah Uh, You mentioned then that some people have reached out to you and are trying to help. What else are you hoping for as far as, or what else do you need if there are people that maybe recognize the name that's on the medals or, or maybe have some other leads?
8: The only thing I really ask is that people like just share this article around and get it around as much as possible, because it'd be really, really nice if I could get these medals back to the, the family because I've I will. I don't care how long it really takes me. I'm not selling them. I'm not giving them away. I'm, well, I will wait until someone comes to claim these medals from me.
2: And I think you mentioned this, Terrell, but how many medals were in the box? Oh, I think there was a, about 10.
4: Hmm.
2: And about a, 10, yeah. About 10 medals. And again, I know you said the name, but you can't say it too many times. It was Lance Corporal Kenneth. And sorry, what was the last name? His name was Lance Corporal Kenneth Gordon Strathy. Strathy. And how do you spell Strathy? Or do you know, do you remember? S-T-R-A-T-H-Y. All right. And do you want to give out to your email? You don't have to. I can uh, do it if people want to email me and pass it along. Or do you want to give it out in case anyone is yeah. listening and, and wants to contact you?
8: I don't mind if anyone reaches my email. It's my first and last name at gmail.com, Milligan at gmail.com.
2: Well, what an amazing find. And uh, Taro, if you do get uh, any uh, concrete leads or you're able to reunite the metals or you find any other treasures in that river, uh, will you let us know? Yes, I will. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much for being here, for joining the show this morning. Yeah, thank you for having me. That is Taro Milligan, an Abbotsford teenager. And again, he found, he snagged a box of war medals while fishing in the Sumas River, fishing in the Vi Road area. And again, his email, Taro Milligan, that's T-A-R-O, M-I-L-L-I-G-A-N, I -I I believe he said at gmail.com. And uh, he's uh, looking for anybody. Yes, at gmail.com. Looking for anybody that might have information on Lance Corporal Kenneth Gordon Strathy.